0: I'm sure many of you uh, will know our first speaker, uh, Toby Ord, who uh, is a research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute on the Future uh, future Tech program at the moment, Uh, and also uh, more relevantly for this, the founder of the Giving What We Can uh, organization, and he'll be uh, speaking to us first, Uh, and that will be followed by uh, some remarks from uh, Harry Shannon, who is uh, visiting Oxford Brookes University at the moment uh, from McMaster University. Uh, in Canada, where he works as a medical statistician. Okay, uh, thank you very much. So one kind of big decision I had in my life was thinking about the following question, uh, which, as it, res- as it uh, concerns effective philanthropy, uh, which is that in my life I worked out I'd earn about £1.5 million. Uh, I worked this out while I was a student, uh, before starting earning. so a uh, good time to reflect upon these things. Uh, of course it will be Actually, a lot higher than that, you know, because a pound won't be worth anything in the future, but I'll have actually, you know, 100 million of them or something. But uh, adjusted for inflation, it's, it's about like uh, earning uh, one and a half million of today's pounds. Uh, I worked out uh, what I needed to live on as a student uh, in Oxford and then kind of inflated that a little bit to take into account uh, council tax and various other costs of living and worked out that I can uh, live uh, the rest of my life uh, on about half a million pounds Uh, which would leave about a million pounds to donate uh, if I wanted to do that. Uh, So I I set about thinking seriously about that and uh, uh, what could I uh, achieve uh, with a million pounds. Uh, It was quite a constructive way to go about thinking about this because if you're asked at various points to donate 10 pounds to something or 50 pounds, it's a small enough amount of money that it's not worth putting in a huge amount of effort to really work out what's going on there. Uh, But if you're thinking about how much you'll donate over your whole life, uh, it ends up being quite a lot larger uh, an amount, uh, uh, even if I perhaps you know decided not to go through with this and to donate uh, um, a tenth of my earnings or something like that, uh, then you know that would still add up to being uh, a very large amount of money and well worth spending time thinking about where to give it. Uh, and when I started thinking about this I, uh, and looking at the the evidence, I realised that uh, it really does matter a lot. Uh, I think uh, for you know gifts in total above. Uh, £100 or something, it's worth putting in some effort on this uh, already. Uh, and I'll, I'll show you the basics of, of that. So one thing that you might uh, might think about when deciding where to give uh, is there's, there's a lot of a focus, uh, if you look at different charities, on uh, the percentage of uh, the uh, money that goes to that charity that gets spent on overheads and administration. Uh, and this is become a bit of a standard uh, measure as to to how good an organization is, Um, I don't think it's a very good measure. Um, A lot of people in the know don't think it's a very good measure. In fact, a lot of the people who report this figure don't think it's a very good measure, but sometimes they think it's the the only measure that they uh, have, or the only measure that can compare any two charities or something like that. Um, So maybe for a particular case uh, where there's two charities that both um, uh, train guide dogs, for example. Um, one of them might do it for less money than the other and give equal quality of training uh, in which case they could say it's more effective but otherwise it could be hard to compare uh, however, uh, it turns out that uh, uh, what the charity is actually doing, uh, whether it's training guide dogs or something else, uh, is a lot more important than the uh, the percentage on overheads and administration. I'm going to show that uh, in this talk um, but you can imagine charities could, could do anything, right uh, you know, looking around the room, it could be the kind of Uh, reupholstering chairs art foundation or something that uh, you know uh, spends a lot of money uh, on that and if if it spends no money on overheads uh, but what it's doing is reupholstering chairs it's unclear that it's going to be very effective and it just obviously matters what they're actually doing I think a lot of people just imagine that the charities somehow it all balances out or that there's some aspect where they wouldn't be doing something that was very ineffective, and so they must all be around about as effective as each other. In the same way as, uh, say, market, market equilibrium is like that, or if you go down to the high street, um, if people are selling products which are quite similar, the prices are generally fairly similar. Um, I don't think that actually happens in the charity world. I think the prices diverge quite uh, markedly. So uh, uh, I think the key question is this one here. For a given donation, say £1,000... How much benefit do people receive from this donation? Uh, You could extend that and ask uh, if you're focusing on an animal charity or something, how much benefit do animals uh, receive? But the basic idea is uh, how much benefit is there for the recipients? Uh, And there's a lot of research out there that can help us answer this, although it's not generally in very easy to use form, unfortunately. Um, A lot of it's focused on uh, health professionals in uh, development uh, or uh, other Uh, people uh, who are doing grant-making for large organisations rather than focused on individual donors, uh, which is quite unfortunate. But uh, I've looked at a lot of this information and have leveraged it a bit. And uh, in fact, as you'll see later, we've got quite a bit of it on our website uh, so people can have a look at it at their leisure. Uh, And as I said, uh, the the greatest difference comes from the type of intervention that is performed. So as a simple kind of comparison for an apples-to-apples kind of case... Uh, it costs about $40,000 to provide a guide dog uh, for someone who's blind. Uh, So there are various estimates of this and that's about the average. Uh, The cost includes training of the dog and also training of the person who's going to receive the dog uh, because they have to know how to use it effectively. Uh, And so it's it's actually quite expensive. It's probably more expensive than than most people would have thought. Uh, I don't think it's all that bad a deal in the sense that that in my life, um, if I was blind, what would I be willing to spend in order to have access to a guide dog? It could be about this amount of money. Um, However, uh, if we're trying to look for the most effective things uh, when it comes to blindness, uh, it costs about $20 uh, to cure someone of blindness uh, that's caused by trachoma. Um, uh, So it's a bacterial infection in the eye, uh, as far as I understand, uh, which is is not a problem in developed countries, but is still a problem in uh, many developing countries. Uh, that cost uh, is, uh, uh, you know, includes uh, treating both of their eyes uh, to uh, restore sight. Uh, so if you're thinking about donating $40,000 and you're thinking about where to donate it and you find a charity that, uh, that trains guide dogs, uh, then $40,000 could provide about one guide dog, which won't cure someone of blindness but it will make their life a bit easier than it would otherwise have been. Um, alternatively, you could completely cure uh, about 2,000 people of blindness uh, by focusing on uh, uh, avoiding trachoma. Um, now, you can't do that in, in Britain because in Britain, um, because it's so cheap, uh, it's already happened. And the state you know, provides treatments which are that cost effective. Uh, it just provides them for free. Uh, so it's hard to find cases where you can uh, get that much leverage and help people for that cheaply um, that haven't already been taken up whereas it can be a lot easier in poorer countries. And so that's why I'm going to focus mainly on that. Uh, uh, so one question that you'd want to ask in general to do a bit more broad comparisons, because blindness to blindness is a pretty narrow comparison. We can't compare many charities if they're trying to be uh, that focused, uh, is to at least broaden that out to look at different aspects of health. And there's very good evidence or, and literature on health. Um, so I'm, I'm going to focus there. And there's also a lot of reason to suspect that a lot of the most effective things we can do are within health. Uh, so one question we could ask is how many lives we can save, uh, in terms of measuring it. So you could compare different health charities by by how many lives they save. This is a, a really quite a bad way of doing it, though. Uh, for one reason, uh, that a lot of people in public health uh, say no one has ever saved a life. Uh, the the person dies anyway. Uh, so you might uh, uh, cure them of cancer, but then they they die of old age. Uh, so uh, this is. This is this sounds like just a joke or something, someone being a bit flippant, uh, but it's quite important because it really matters uh, that we extend lives, and it seems to really matter how we extend them. So if you gave someone some operation, suppose they had two really bad conditions. They've just been shot um, uh, in the street. They're admitted to emergency. Uh, they've been shot in the liver and in the heart and uh, you do an operation on them at significant expense, uh, which repairs their liver functioning. Um, but you know that you can't fix their heart, um, and then you know, they get to live an extra day because you fix their liver. That's not actually all that useful. Um, I mean, it's, it's worth something, uh, but it's not worth anywhere near as much as giving them more years of life. It really matters how, mu- how much we extend the life. So we could move to a question that I have below about how many life years can we save. Uh, but there's still some a pretty important remaining question about the quality of the life. So it matters, for example, if uh, maybe there are two medications available, and one of them uh, would give you uh, a slightly longer uh, uh, remaining life uh, if you're facing some difficult medical condition, uh, but the quality would be substantially reduced, uh, perhaps at some uh, invasive chemotherapy or something. And it can matter actually what that quality is. And you can do quality-quantity trade-offs Uh, And there are also many forms of health improvements which are just about the quality of the life. Uh, For example, curing blindness, which may not make someone live longer, but makes them live better. So uh, you'd also want to adjust that for the quality. And so there's a standard approach um, that's used quite a lot in practical ethics and also in public health, uh, which is to talk about quality-adjusted life years, um, taking into account the quality and the quantity. Uh, And just to give you a sketch of what this, this means... Uh, Here is a a chart uh, which is meant to represent uh, someone's life and the quality of it over time. And you can see, I'll see if this works. Uh, You can see here that uh, uh, we've got some measure as to how high quality it is. Uh, And the idea with this is that it's the health related quality, it doesn't include all the quality of their life. It's just meant to focus on health. Uh, And if someone's ill uh, for a while, see here, uh, where are assumed that, uh, that their quality of life has gone down to about 90% uh, and then has slowly recovered and then in a progressive series of illnesses has dropped off again towards old age and then has rapidly declined. Uh, that's just a, a sketch as to how you might try to think about this. Uh, in practice, when people are doing decisions, it's a bit more rough and ready uh, and uh, looks, uh, in many cases, something more like this. Um, this is a, a schematic to try to show just a couple of different ways in which you could improve lives. Uh, in this first case uh, we're imagining that maybe there's someone who at, from birth you could uh, you could avoid them having a serious uh, health problem and this would improve their quality of life in this case from 70% to 90% uh, for their whole life of, uh, of 60 years or alternatively perhaps you could provide uh, a medication uh, which would extend someone's life by 10 years like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you might have a choice between different things and you want some way to decide which of these is better and so the idea is that uh, Uh, we can decide this by looking at the area of these different shapes that we're adding. Uh, So in this case, what you do is you just look at the area, as I said, and convert it into these quality adjusted life years. Um, uh, You might wonder how people can work out this percentage. Uh, They do it based on uh, surveys and uh, trying to find out for people if they're in different health states, which health state would they prefer, and how would they prefer different trade-offs between different health states and different lengths of life. Um, so they get a lot of survey data on this and also talk it through with people and talk with people with those health conditions and so on. So uh, the NHS is prepared to spend at least £20,000 to, uh, to save one of these life years at full health, um, uh, sometimes more, um, which comes to about £2.30 per hour, uh, which is a very good deal. Uh, if you could get uh, hours of healthy life for £2.30, uh, it would be a good investment. And uh, if someone in this room were selling them, I would give them all my money, (laughs) Uh, uh, because uh, that's a better deal than most of the things I spend my money on. Uh, If you compare it to going to the cinema or something, where you just improve a regular hour into a kind of cinema hour, uh, and it costs quite a lot more. Uh, So that's how much uh, uh, much, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the NHS is prepared to spend on a uh, year of healthy life. And I think they probably actually should be prepared to spend more. Uh, But another question is, how much does it cost? Um, Maybe you can actually get them a lot cheaper than that. Uh, And uh, the answer is yes, uh, particularly if you look at developing countries. Uh, So if you look at uh, HIV uh, or AIDS, uh, we all know it's a big cause of uh, death and disability in developing countries, and there's many different approaches to it. But what's really interesting is if you look at different uh, AIDS-related interventions – uh, they have very different cost effectiveness. Um, so here is an example of two different things. The first one is treating a, uh, a surgical treatment uh, for a skin condition called Kaposi's sarcoma, um, which is an AIDS-defining illness. And the second one is antiretroviral therapy. And uh, antiretroviral therapy is, uh, is vastly more cost-effective uh, than treatment for Kaposi's sarcoma. Uh, for every 1,000 uh, pounds you spend on this, uh, it produces about one and a half uh, qualies. Um, And this is the the barrier uh, for what you need in order to be cost effective in the UK. So it's much more cost effective than it would need to be to be funded here and indeed is funded here. Uh, But if we zoom out, uh, we can now look at uh, another uh, uh, HIV related uh, intervention, which is to prevent transmission during pregnancy. Um, So providing medications to stop the the infection going from a known infected mother into her child. Uh, And that's uh, much more cost effective. Uh, we can also zoom out and look at uh, distribution of condoms is uh, substantially more cost-effective again. Uh, and just, you can't even see the uh, the barrier as to how cost-effective it needs to be in order to be a good deal anymore. Um, this is, uh, is vastly more cost-effective uh, than uh, it needs to be uh, to be worth funding. And if we actually uh, change and look at a different cause, um, in this case looking at malaria uh, prevention, uh, distribution of bed nets to prevent malaria is much more cost-effective again. Uh, so there's a very wide range of, uh, of effectiveness. And this is what I said at the start. It really matters what intervention is being performed, more than a 10% difference. If you find out, oh, but the BedNet uh, organization uh, is, uh, you know, spends 3% of its costs on uh, administration instead of 1%, You know, that's only actually losing this amount of its value. And it's probably uh, also quite useful anyway because the administration is not just wasted money. It's money that helps them check that they're doing the right thing and so on. Uh, so what it means for us, uh, um, if we want to donate money to help fight HIV, uh, it really matters whether the program we give to is aimed at fighting Kaposi's sarcoma or at distributing condoms. Uh, it's not enough to know uh, that you know this will help fight AIDS, uh, because there are many different things you could do, and they're very different cost-effectiveness, and uh, some of the programs uh, just fund each one of these interventions. It's not the case that they all focus on the most effective things. It's generally very... Uh, Uh, The the information on this effectiveness is not very well known at all, Um, and there's a lot of organisations that just do particular interventions which are known to be a hundredth as effective as another intervention. Uh, But also, if we really want to help people, um, it's not clear why we should just focus on one disease. Why not just look for the longest bar and uh, and try to do the thing that's the most effective and that helps people the most? So perhaps uh, change our focus from HIV to malaria in this case. Uh, Also uh, health programmes can be amazingly cost effective, uh, about a thousand times more so than here in the UK or a thousand times more than is needed to be a good deal uh, each uh, uh, is around about 5 pounds to 30 pounds depending on the estimate uh, uh, is a year of life at full health so that's the kind of headline figure there um, but only if it's used on the best programs so it's quite amazing that uh, whereas previously I was talking about uh, 2 pounds 30 um, getting a an hour of healthy life being a good deal um, if for just a little bit more you could get an entire year of healthy life according to our best estimates at the moment Uh, I should add that uh, that, uh, with with estimates on these things, sometimes you have estimates which are based on just the health data uh, and you need to situate it a little bit more if you find an organisation which is performing that particular intervention. Uh, So the $20 uh, that I mentioned earlier for uh, uh, curing blindness uh, is the kind of aggregate estimate for uh, trachoma prevention, but I don't know of any organisation which is just focusing on um, curing uh, blindness due to trachoma. And therefore, I don't know of anywhere where you can get as quite as good a deal as that. Uh, the, obviously, there are organisations focused on site in general, but it can be difficult to get that specific. Uh, and uh, the best that we know of at the moment, uh, taking into account the specifics of the organisation, is about five pounds to thirty pounds uh, for a year of life um, with the Against Malaria Foundation. So, if we come back to the question, how much good can we achieve? Uh, I considered these two different options: uh, spending one and a half million pounds uh, over my life on myself. Uh, versus spending half a million on myself and donating a million uh, to help others, uh, and chose to do this second path, um, uh, which is still enough to have a great quality of life and to have uh all of the, uh, the music that I really love and uh, spend uh, time with my wife and my great friends and have a glass of wine and so on and so forth. It's like All the things that actually really matter in my life I can still get, uh, but I actually uh, can save up enough money to make a really big difference, um, saving at least uh, 30,000 uh, quality adjusted life years, or which is equivalent to 300 centuries of life at full health. So that's the kind of thing you can do if you try to be effective about your giving. Uh, And just to say a little bit about the organisation that I founded and am the president of uh, called Given What We Can, Uh, it's a community of people who feel strongly about improving uh, the lives of those in developing countries, Uh, and uh, as a a token of this, uh, each member makes a pledge to donate at least 10% of their income uh, for the rest of their life uh, to wherever they think it can do the most to help. with, uh, and the focus there is on uh, uh, developing countries. So trying to help improve people's lives in poor countries. Uh, and we run a website which collects and shares information on the cost effectiveness of different charities uh, to help our members and also to help the public who are interested, even if perhaps they think that a 10% pledge is, uh, is not for them, uh, they might want to know uh, you know, where they can get more, uh, uh, help people more with a given donation. Uh, and it has two, two big aims and it's, it's worth dwelling on this for a moment. Its first aim is to get people to give more. Um, so this, this blue box here represents uh, how much, uh, well, see, uh represents uh, how much uh, the average person in the UK is, uh, is giving and how effectively it's been uh, spent. And uh, we think we can get people to give uh, quite a lot more than that. Uh, and also uh, to give it with much more uh, cost effectiveness And then the impact that they have is is better than the sum of its parts. It's the uh, product of its parts in this case. And uh, the the total impact is very large Uh, if you try to do both these things together. You can see that if you just did them separately, uh, the benefit would be a lot smaller. Uh, We've got 290 members at the moment. Uh, We are very happy to say that while our number of members is not... uh, not uh, as high as say some Facebook pages that you've probably set up yourselves. Uh, the amount of commitment is very high and uh, the total amount of money pledged uh, is uh, more than $100 million uh, now, uh, which, which is quite a lot and is enough uh, to uh, uh, help save um, somewhere between about two and 11 million quality adjusted life years. Uh, we have also have local chapters in various places, including Oxford, uh, which is set up and so uh, to run events and things like that and get people interested and involved. Uh, and uh, that's our, uh, our web address, uh, in case uh, you're interested in looking up any of these things. Uh, but now let's, let's go and hear what uh, Harry has to say.
1: Well, thanks very much for the invitation to speak. I, I guess it was Julian Savalescu who invited me. Um, now, you're probably wondering what a statistician is doing speaking at a philosophy seminar. Um, I can assure you I've been wondering the same thing myself. Um, And given that just about everything I know about philosophy comes from the Monty Python Philosopher's Song. um, So in thinking about this, I realised I had to go back to what I do know, namely statistics and epidemiology. Um, I very much admire what Toby's doing with giving what we can so I'm very pleased to be speaking on the same platform with him. Um, Now I have no idea really about the audience. I assume some of you are philosophers but I spoke to a couple of you before we started and obviously you're from rather different backgrounds. So I'm hoping that what I say won't be too elementary but we'll, we'll, we'll we'll go and see what happens. So as I say what I'm going to do is talk Primarily about what I see from a statistical, epidemiological point of view, particularly about um, the giving what you can approach and the ideas. Um, when Julian um, asked me to give this, I had mentioned that I'm here trying to understand how you evaluate humanitarian aid. And so he was very interested and said, well, why don't you come along and give a talk here? Now, I've got quite a lot to say just focusing on giving what we can, and I think it'll be a natural follow-up to what Toby says. So I'm actually not going to be talking about about that. If anyone's interested, I could discuss that later um, if you feel that there's been false advertising here. Um, So if you're interested, get in touch, and and I can tell you more. So I think what we're trying to do is think about how and what we do in terms of any kind of charity or more broadly, philanthropy. Um, So, what we're trying to do is help people in need. Um, And this quote from James Orbinski, who's actually a Canadian, uh, he talks about we have to see our place in the ecosystem as as members of humanity. And then in terms of what you actually do, he says we've got to recognise humility, trying and doing governance. And then he says, well, we're never going to get the perfect answer, but we've got to do something now. We can't wait till we get a perfect answer. Um, Another comment that I saw actually in yesterday's paper um, suggests that we have changed in this country there was a sense um, at least from Ken Loach who obviously has his own perspective um, that immediately after the war when everyone had been through difficult times it had been a a national effort to defeat Hitler um, that that was a time when people really did look after each other and he was bemoaning the fact that perhaps today we're not doing that And and the spirit of 45 is a a documentary that um, I, get, I guess is about to come out. Now, I don't know if this is one of the bits of music that Toby thinks is great music, I, um, but the quote here money, it's a hit, don't give me that do goody good bullshit, and I won't try and sing it. Um, now, so this is one attitude, but I think in the context of the album itself it was one of the things greed that can drive you mad because if you sort of, at least that's one interpretation of the album and the one that i prefer to 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 accept another approach to looking at how you give was comes from a um well i said i wouldn't talk philosophy but this is a jewish philosopher from the 12th century and he has what people call a hierarchy or sometimes a ladder of charitable giving. It isn't actually um, really a ladder if you look at it. The first four are about how readily you give and, and how accepting you are of the idea, what your willingness is. The next three I think are quite interesting because they're looking at different possible combinations of anonymity of the donor and the recipient, how much who knows whom in the, in that list. When I mean, the final one is one where it's essentially saying try and help set people up to become self-reliant. So even you know, hundreds of years ago people were thinking, and I'm sure the Greeks did this as well, uh, people were thinking about what it is that you want to um, achieve and what are the optimal ways of doing that. And I think sort of my summary that I pulled up before, before today, in terms of what giving what we can does, is they're focusing very much on proven results, evidence-based. Incidentally, the term evidence-based was coined by Gordon Guyot, who's a colleague of mine in my department at McMaster. Um, and they also focus on the developing world for reasons that we heard. Um, cost effectiveness you can also think about how serious a problem we're dealing with how big is the problem Um, and they do regular reviews of the best charities I think they do it annually and they also say well think about what your career will be it's all very well making lots of money trampling all over people and then giving it away and saying what a wonderful person you are but if you've caused a lot of harm along the way then I'm not sure you're really um, doing the right thing. So, um, this unfortunately is um, too often the case that people, if you re- can read this at the bottom, your facts are impressive, but we need instincts to back them up. And I think what we're trying to do here is think about what are the facts, or at least the methods and the facts, that we can use to truly understand what's going on. Now, these are some of the issues that I'm going to go through um, that come from my perspective, which is that of someone in statistics, epidemiology, very much focused on methods. And one of the examples, the main example I'm going to use, is that of malaria and bed nets, which is one of the approaches considered by doing what we can. Essentially, malaria is transmitted by infected mosquitoes. Um, if people have bed, nets over their bed that prevents mosquitoes getting in and biting them, especially at, during at night, which is when mosquitoes are active, um, then particularly if the nets are also insecticide-treated, then that can prevent you from being bitten. And there have been quite a lot of studies done. It seems to work, and I'm putting work in quote marks because I'll have more to say about that in a moment. Um, Currently, there's what are called long-lasting insecticidal nets. And as I mentioned, uh, this is something recommended by giving what we can. Now, before I go any further, what I want to do is talk a little bit about study designs, the sort of things that I am involved in in epidemiology. Many studies are what are called observational or cohort studies. Essentially, you take people who receive some kind of intervention or have some kind of exposure, a group of people, a comparison group who don't, and then essentially you see what differences there are between them over time. The problem, the big problem you face is that there may be differences between the groups. So the sort of people who use bed nets may be different from those who don't. Maybe they can afford the bed nets. All sorts of other factors may be involved. They may take more care anyway if they're willing to use bed nets. Now statistically we can often control for a variety of factors but they have to be factors that we know about. The alternative type of study that is considered the gold standard, the optimal study, is what's called a randomized controlled trial which is a true experiment. Essentially what you do is you toss a coin and if it's heads you'll get the intervention, if it's tails you'll get the um, the alternative or either no intervention or in the case of let's say a drug there'll be a placebo given. Uh, now what this does, the randomization, it tells you that in expectation. The two groups will be comparable. They will be similar. Um, Not just on the known factors, things you know about, but on unknown factors. And that's the crucial point. The other thing is, I've put the word expectation in quotation marks because essentially it just means on average. It could be that in any particular study you do, you toss a coin and... You know how every so often you toss a coin ten times it comes up heads? You know, well, occasionally that will happen. That's built into the statistical ideas, and it's known that every so often you will make an error of that sort. Now I also want to make a distinction between efficacy and effectiveness. Efficacy is typically determined in a randomized trial. And it's arguing whether you can see an effect of an intervention under ideal circumstances. So you make sure that the people who who get it really are properly comparable. You control everything. You make sure that the bed nets are used, etc., etc. Effectiveness says, what happens when we... Expand this. The result of this, we generalize it out, give these bed nets out, and let life take its course. So we're out in the real world. In general, there we can't use a randomized trial, but we can use an observational study, and we can adjust for known confounders. But often we won't be able to do more than that. There will Always potentially, at least, be some factors that we cannot control for. So, in, in a sort of quick, quickly, efficacy: can it work? Effectiveness: does it work? That's the short summary. And and what's going on is this: essentially, we give out the bed nets, and we see is the rate of death, or some other, or maybe um, experience of malaria, is that reduced. But in practice, a whole series of things have to happen along the way. People actually have to use the nets. They can't can't get ripped, so the mosquitoes can get inside. Uh, So that then would reduce the risk of being bitten, reduce the risk of contracting malaria, and potentially dying from it. Now, the other thing that could happen is, well, uh, maybe mosquitoes can evolve resistance or change your feeding time. So if they start biting you during the day when you're not under the net, the bed net's not going to be much use. There are actually one or two studies of um, the effectiveness of bed nets when handed out. And this particular one, and you might actually recognize the name of one of the authors here, uh, this actually just came out a few weeks ago. and what it did is, it we it was work done primarily by a PhD student, um, so the people here uh, pronounce that way, she's uh, Burmese from, from Burma, Myanmar, I'm not sure which she's supposed to say these days, uh, and then the thesis committee. She so we used data from a survey done in Nigeria, which is one of the places where they have the highest number of cases and deaths from malaria, in part because Nigeria is a pretty big country. Um, what has happened is there have been campaigns by three organisations, World Bank, UNICEF and Global Fund, and they'd done it in different areas of a the country. There were some areas of a country where there was no campaign. So you had bed nets given out in some areas, not in others. Now, it wasn't a randomised trial, as you can tell. It was certain areas that were focused on, because they were particularly at risk, they had relatively high rates of malaria and death from malaria. It turned out that there was statistically significant, and if anyone wants that term explained later, I'm happy to do that, um, statistically significant improvement in the World Bank areas, but actually not in the other areas. Um, and it wasn't just the bed nets that seemed to be important there were several other factors there were things like the wealth of the community um, whether the mothers knew about a certain amount about malaria and also use of bed nets at the child level although these effects weren't as strong as simply the relative rates of malaria in the, in the places where they handed out bed nets, those regions, compared to the ones where they didn't. Um, also point out another study that was done um, slightly before this one, where they found in three different areas there was a reduction in malaria in two of them, but not the third. So I think overall, at least on average, you can say they probably did work um, and quite likely were cost-effective, but it does somewhat complicate the picture. In fact, I think, in a sense, I'm I'm making everything more complicated. I'm afraid. Um, I'm reminded of a statistician, um, Andrew Ehrenberg, who was quoted as saying, "There's no problem that is so complicated that when a group of clever people get together, they can't make it more complicated." So another issue is how far away do you want to look in terms of, look at, of understanding causation? So you could, instead of doing bed, using bed nets, do spraying insect. Um, you could encourage people to remove stagnant water where mosquitoes breed. Or um, DDT was banned, I think, in the nineteen seventies at the time it had appeared to be very effective at preventing at uh, preventing malaria the spread of malaria but it was western concerns about environmental impact that led to its being banned uh, and the further back you go the harder it is to understand whether you're really having an effect. Remember that chain of events that we saw for bed nets to have an effect. You've got a much longer chain with probably many other things feeding in um, if we're thinking about this. Now, another issue that um, in many ways is parallel to what Toby was talking about, the idea of what's called number needed to treat. Um, There are various quantitative measures that epidemiologists use to look at how effective or the impact of a a health intervention. So let's say we do a study like this. We have a randomized study. We have a thousand people on bed nets, a thousand not on bed nets. And then we wait over a suitable period of time, and I'm not going to define suitable, and see what happens. Okay. So the numbers work out like this: 200 in the bed net group get malaria, 400 in the no bed net. So what we can do is this has just gone off. Here but we'll deal with that. Um, this is risk of malaria. This vertical line is what mathematicians use to say given. So given risk of malaria, given bed net is two over two hundred over a thousand. Um, yeah, the formatting's got screwed up the risk of malaria with no bed net 400 over 1000 so what's called the relative risk is 0.5 in other words you're half as likely to get malaria if you got the bed net than if you didn't now what's lost down here is the risk difference which is over here 0.4 minus 0.2 or 0.2 So so 0.2 is 20%, so 20% less likely to get malaria with a bed net. But now let's look at a second study where the background rate of malaria is much lower. So we've got only 20 out of 1,000 and 40 out of 1,000. So going through the similar calculations, the relative risk stays the same, so I can still say we've halved the risk of malaria. but. When I look at the risk difference it's much smaller, instead of being 20% it's only 2%. Now one thing we can use is what's called the number needed to treat which essentially just takes the inverse of this and the definition is how many people have to get bed nets to prevent one case of malaria and it works out (coughs) to be five for the first study about like 50 to the second study. So quite a difference. <clears throat> and depending on what the background rates are, the difference could be well it could be smaller but it could also be bigger. If you gave out bed nets in, <clears throat> in Oxford and tried to <clears throat> look at the rates of malaria, it would this NNT would probably be in the tens of thousands, I would think, if, if not higher. Obviously you're not going to do that, but in principle you could try a method that will that, that will happen. Uh, now what I think the analogy with giving what we can is doing is using essentially number of pounds needed to prevent one case. So I think that's the analogy of this. Another thing to think about is considering individual level v. contextual level. So sometimes you can do something at the individual level. It's very easy, very easy to give out bed nets. But it's much harder to do something aimed at a wider, wider level. Let me give you an example. Last week Oxfam started a campaign. And they're looking at some of the major food companies. And they're saying, you know, you guys are producing food in a lot of the time in developing countries and many of the people there including some of your staff the people working for you are going to bed hungry so what the heck is going on now if you can't quite so what they're doing is looking at it's actually the 10 major food companies you probably can't read these they're land women farmers workers climate transparency and water there's some of the big picture issues that they feel are not being dealt with adequately or even at all well by these companies. And they've rated the comp- each company from a scale from 0 to 1 is very up to 8 to 10 is good and Nestle who are top in this list of 10 only get 38 out of 70. So we clearly don't think these companies are doing a good job. So they're essentially trying to use some kind of public pressure, um, shame, to get these companies to modify their behaviour. Now, I think it's fair to say Oxfam could do something much simpler. They could use something, use some method that will get people food much much more simply, but it probably have a relatively modest impact. By looking at this big picture, I would accept that it's going to be a very low probability that that it will be highly successful, but if it were, it would have an enormous impact. So my question here is, how do you evaluate these two, and in particular, how do you choose between them? And suppose they did get these companies to change how they do business could you actually say that was a result of their campaign? All sorts of other things might be going on. Maybe governments pick either because of the Oxfam campaign or for completely different reasons pick up on some of this. They're concerned about water and the use of water in future and whether we'll have enough to grow crops we need. And they might might be planning to act anyway. To some extent you can look at this statistically but probably not there are probably so many complicated interrelationships that you probably can't do there's a slide that some of you may remember from a few years ago it was a slide shown to American generals that looks at complexity of things they were actually thinking of how you stabilise Afghanistan and they came up with this as a sort of all the relationships the interrelationships and I would think if in terms of Oxfam's campaign it's probably something as complicated as this going on. Maybe more complicated. The other thing we need to do is make sure we consider all relevant outcomes. So they're often side effects. That's what they're called in, in medicine. They, we can apply that equally well to charity. It could be good or bad. So, for example, with bed nets. Reduced cases of malaria might actually not only reduce mortality, but improve productivity because adults are fit enough and healthy enough to work and so on. There are examples of drugs that might reduce the disease they're targeting, but they actually, at least at face value, cause an increase in things that um, they're not supposed to, other diseases. Now it's also important to replicate results. Um, this is a paper a few years ago by a very smart guy, Johnny Anad- Anidis, and it's to do with issues around statistical um, inference. I won't go into it now, but just that result. And uh, there's a systematic review of deworming just a few months ago. They actually found quite a lot of different randomized trials. actually one they still haven't got results for, but as you can see, tens of thousands of people involved. And what they found is um, basically, they just say, we don't know if these programs have an effect. And they say they may, on um, various things, weight height, school attendance, school performance, and they may have little or no effect on hemoglobin so anemia or cognition now interestingly they said there was a trial and this raises ethical issues which I think will lead but, but the study finished in 2005 it hasn't yet been published I haven't been able to get the result it's not I tried to dig around yesterday a bit to find out what was going on I I couldn't re- couldn't really get a sense of it I well I, I have my suspicions but Um, okay so a few implications in terms of what I've been talking about. Um, Firstly there's going to be some kind of margin of error when we estimate effectiveness Um, that can be due to a variety of things including for example the number needed to treat but various other statistical issues as well Um, on average I think we, we will be able to distinguish a very good from a very bad but I think we're going to be some um, grey area where it's going to be very hard to do that. Something may appear to be of modest effect, could actually be very poor, or could actually be very good. Uh, and also, as with the Oxfam example, I think it's going to be very hard to look at things that are more complex, that where people are trying to do, the charity like Oxfam is trying to do something complex. And the typical health type of research cannot look at, cannot understand it. At least cannot understand it as we would like it understood. And so I think that while I accept that you know the way that giving what we can is doing things, what I would argue is we should also be willing to give to maybe campaigns like Oxfam's or others that we feel are great, potentially very effective Even though we really, at the time we give, or even in the future, probably can't understand fully what their effect will be. So let me leave it there. If anyone at any point wants to contact me, there's my email.